Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Good morning, I'm Elliot Moss. Welcome to Jazz Shapers. It's where the shapers of business join the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. My guest today, I'm extremely pleased to say, is Marcus Waring, celebrated chef and co-founder of Marcus Waring Restaurants. Marcus wanted to be a chef since he was 13. He left school without qualifications, but at Southport Catering College, he came top in every exam for the first time in his life. I felt like a duck to water, he has said reportedly. We'll find out if he actually did say that. Hopefully it's true. Gordon Ramsay's protégé for 19 years, Marcus was awarded his first Michelin stars at the tender age of just 26, one of only a handful of chefs to be recognised at that age. In 2008, Marcus and his wife Jane founded Marcus Waring Restaurants, a London-based restaurant group specialising in contemporary British food inspired by Marcus's northern heritage. He also happens to be a judge on MasterChef The Professionals and the author of no less than seven cookbooks, and maybe there's more coming. We'll talk to Marcus about all of this, his love for bringing technology into the kitchen and serving custard tot to the Queen. I can't say I've done that, but we're going to find out what happened when he did. We've also got brilliant music from, amongst others, Mylena Shaw, Dizzy Gillespie and Freddie Hubbard. That's today's Jazz Shapers. Here's Miles Davis with Freddie Freeloader. <laughs> That was Miles Davis, of course, with Freddie Freeloader. This is Jazz Shapers. My business shaper today is Marcus Waring, as I said earlier, and I'm extremely pleased to see you. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. How does a young child decide that he wants to be a chef? At that age, and I've got kids of that age, they're all over the place. I mean, they love a bit of this and a bit of that. It sounds like you knew. Mm. How did you know? It's a question I ask myself, actually. I've got three children of my own. Um, my eldest is 17, uh, going on you know, 18, and he doesn't know. So I find it quite unusual that you haven't got any aspirations maybe to want to go down certain roads. And the world has changed without doubt. So I often reflect on how did I actually get here or to become a chef. And it's, it's very simple. I'm a northwestern lad from, you know, from Southport in Lancashire, and I come from a very small place where there's not a lot going on. It's a seaside town. But it was all generated around my father's business, which was fruit and potatoes. And I think it all sort of sort of stemmed from that, really. I never saw a job outside of either working alongside my father once I'd left school or following my big brother, who happened to be a chef and he's seven years my senior. So those are the only really two things that sort of were staring me in the face. I'd never, ever thought about anything else. Not a plumber, not a, nothing mm. else. Don't know why. I just didn't. And it seems quite archaic and quite old. And actually, when you do reflect on the 1970s, we only had three channels on the television. And that really, I remember them well. And that makes me feel very old. And when I actually tell my children that's all we had, they don't believe me. Even the point that you have to get up out of your chair to change the channel <laughs> makes them laugh so much. <laughs> A remote control, I think remote controls happened about 1980 or something, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, literally, there were three channels, and yeah. you pressed, pressed the button really hard yeah. and hoped it worked. And so it, it's true, and it was, so it was, it was for me, it was really yeah. an interesting time, but very straightforward, basic vision, and not, it wasn't, didn't, didn't take much to work out. And what was it about school that didn't appeal? It was the 
no one ever paid any attention, not that I noticed. Uh, maybe I didn't stand out. Um, I don't know. I enjoyed the sport and I enjoyed leaving at three o'clock. Um, there was one thing I did enjoy at school that uh, my sister wanted me to do because she enjoyed it, which was home economics. Uh, so there was an opportunity to go into a little kitchen. It wasn't called home economics, it was called something else because you used to do all different other things you know, within that. So it could have been sewing, it could have been other things. But there was a part of those lessons where you'd go into a kitchen and you'd make things. Uh, and I used to remember my sister, my, my big sister, coming home with all sorts of lovely things that she made when she was at the same school I went to. Uh, and I, I, I did that. And how I ended up doing it, I have no idea because it was the, wasn't, didn't feel right going to school with a basket of ingredients, the same basket my sister used, which was seriously embarrassing. <laughs> uh, and then, but going into a, into a kitchen and, and making things like bread and, and little tarts and pineapple upside down cake was one of the one of the things I made, and I loved it. And I felt it made me happy, it made me smile, it, it was fun, and it made me very popular on the way home when I had a basket full of cakes. The, you mentioned Southport and and the mm. size of the town and and all that, and I, you've just made me think about the film Cinema Paradiso and there's that moment in Cinema Paradiso where the older fellow says to the younger guy just don't come back, go and make your fortune was there that sense of you leaving somewhere to go into the big wide world yes. and you knew you had to and when did you feel that? Mate's my dad, I left school at, th- at 3 o'clock every afternoon and I'd be in the warehouse at, at, at quarter to 4, changed and ready to go to wash up, uh, sweep up make tea, get on the wagons, go and deliver go to the farms um, But I mean in terms of leaving Southport though in terms well, it, of was, actually... it was working with him Okay night after night and, and weekend after weekend there was a point where he, I'll never forget it it was, it was about that I can't remember the time but it was about the time my nan passed away which was his mother who lived on the premises she was my, probably my closest friend because I used to hang out there so much but I used to hang out in the house and make tea and I used to go to the cake shop and get cakes for the workmen and so on uh, and my dad just turned to me one day and he said this is not for you and I couldn't understand what he meant and he said look you can come into the family business if you want but go and do something different. Just get out. It's, 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 I, won't, I won't actually say the words he said. He's a northerner. Uh, and it, wasn't, it was pretty direct. It was, it's not happening here, mate. You know, you go and find something different. He didn't tell me what to do. Go and find something else because you're, you're not coming into this business. It's, it's, it's coming. It's over. What he meant by that was school meal services were changing into canteens. So food in schools was becoming uh, a tin, a freezer, a deep fat fryer. And it was not home cooked food. Corner shops were disappearing because supermarkets were coming into the horizon uh, and restaurants were getting smaller and smaller and using more deep-fried products than fresh produce. My father was all about fresh produce. So you could see the time that we were in 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 the the early 80s was dwindling away slowly, but he sensed it and gave me and my brother a push. And so what was the only other thing I could see in front of me? It was cookery. Stay with me to find out much more about my business shaper. That's Marcus Waring um, right here in the hot seat. Lots more coming up from him in a moment. Time for music right now. It's Mylena Shaw with Woman of the Ghetto. That was Marlena Shaw with Woman of the Ghetto. I'm here today with Marcus Waring. We're talking about, going back a bit in time, talking about where you grew up and those important words your dad said, which is, you better move on. Mm. It's what you've got to do. And I, that must be, I mean, as, as a parent, you know, that's a, that's a really mm. big responsibility to say the right thing, but obviously just came from a place of this is what's really going to happen. But also he must have known something about you, Marcus. He must have known that there was something a little special that needed to 
be expressing itself? I don't know. I, I'm or am sure. I just putting am I putting words in your mouth? Is that not I, true? I don't know. My dad always said things as it was, but he he could see. My work ethic was a little bit different to most people of my age, and it, it, it stemmed from him, really, so I was inspired by him. I think his words were, he didn't want to really paint the path, he just wanted to just give you a good kick in the backside uh, and a clout around the ear roll, as he would call it, and, mm. and really wake up, because this isn't quite happening here. And I don't know whether or not, you know, I, if I actually could think about now to push my son away, my son's 17, exactly the same age. That's a big deal, isn't it? Massive. I couldn't do that to my yeah, son I'm not now. sure I could either, actually. No. So... And that's, I don't know what it was like in those days. Well, I don't remember it as being harsh, but my father did. You know, yeah. it was the time of, of, of Margaret Thatcher. Things were really tough. There was lots going on in, in that era. I don't think he expected me to go as far as London because I didn't hang around in the Northwest or in the Midlands. Literally did the catering college, got on a train, and went straight to the, came straight to London, straight to the Savoy Hotel. So I went from one extreme to the other, and that was quite a shock. I think for everybody really, but maybe that was a bit of ambition that he saw that I didn't know I had mm. um, underneath that that sort of working boy sweeping up and making tea. And you talk about your work ethic, and that's what people say that you work incredibly hard. No mm. one gets to do what you do and set these restaurants up and be so successful in this. They work really hard, and then they've got talent. Mm. Is that the right order as you look at people in your business? It's interesting because. I actually spoke to my dad some years once I'd come to London and I couldn't understand the way he used to work. My father was a workaholic and I asked him about the hours we used to work together. And every Friday I left school at three, I didn't get home until Saturday night the next day. We stayed overnight together and we stayed uh, working. My father would work through the night because he had so much work to do and he'd keep me there. And I asked him, why, why did he used to work so hard? Why, did, why was I there? He said, because I was trying to sicken you of the business. He tried to make me f sick to death of working, but he didn't realise I was actually enjoying it. <laughs> uh, and I remember he used to send me off for a cup of tea about 11, 12 o'clock at night to go and make a cup of tea and I'd fall asleep on the couch. Mm. And he'd come and shake me at four or five o'clock in the morning, let's get going again. And it was that work ethic. But I, I, for some reason, I, I had a knack for it and I enjoyed it and I thoroughly enjoyed the atmosphere. But for me, from my point of view, you know, you talk about natural talent. I think you have to work at natural talent. I look at p professional people in, in all different you know, worlds and I think everyone works hard to try and be the best of what it is they've chosen to be. And that's all I've ever done. And those first few years, so you obviously, you, you do your, you do your uh, catering college, you, you're in London, you're at the Savoy. Mm. I imagine then, and now it's changed, I imagine that north-south divide was pretty punctuated. I imagine people looking, who's this fellow from the north? I mean, what were, the, what were kitchens like at that point? I don't think it was like that. I, okay. I don't know. I don't think it was. I think the Savoy was, a, a, was a, a mix of so many different cultures. There was 110 chefs in that hotel when I walked into that kitchen at, at, at 17, uh, just turning 18. And I felt um, lost and unsure and whether I'd done the right thing, I didn't know. Um, my parents brought me down uh, and pretty much left me there one weekend. It was, uh, you know, we... You know, my first day at work was the 4th of July, 1988. Not that you remember it, of course. I remember that day very clearly. And I remember being walked into the fish section at the back of the Savoy, the coal fish section, they called it, and there was three or four people in there. Uh, and I just wandered in as this young kid, and they gave me a hat, a tall hat and a long white apron. And I felt very, wow, this is the big world now. And it was a Monday morning, uh, Monday, Tuesday morning, and I'd had my induction. And then I remember walking into this section, and, and it was on this, it was, for some strange reason, it was above the road at the side of the Savoy, and there was a window. Uh, and I remember looking out the window and seeing my dad. He, 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 he sort of still hung around, and it's like he was wandering around the hotel. His son was in this big building that he couldn't get into and didn't want to go into because the Savoy was just like the alien place for him. But he was outside, and I, and, and I just said, just go, just get out of here. <laughs> 
leave me, go, because I don't want to see you. Otherwise, I'm getting on that train and I'm coming with you. Mm. I hated London. I didn't like it at all. I found it a really tough place to live. Um, very homesick. Uh, but it was the get your head down and really crash through that work ethic that, that was in front of me, which was tons and tons of fish every day, shellfish. You name it, it was in that part of that kitchen and from boxes of salmon to turbots to, to and you name it, we, 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 we went through it. And I found myself very early on in the first few months, I ended up running the whole section. Um, I ended up being put in charge of this, this, this department that bought more fish than the butcher bought meat. And I found that quite unusual. And that was, if I reflect back on it, was just the hard work I put into. I could fill it that fish like it was you no know, tomorrow, it was easy. And just a quick thought, how long did you take to feel part of London to actually go, you know what, I'm all right here now, versus those first few months where it was not very nice? When did you go, all right, this is my city, I'm all right? Probably about six, seven years down the line. Wow. Five, six, seven years down the line, I didn't feel part of London. I still felt part of the Northwest because I couldn't, I couldn't disconnect from the family because to keep me first through those first few years, I would go home at night uh, and I'd call my dad at like 11... 12 o'clock at night and he was going to be in the warehouse you know I knew where he was and so we'd talk we'd talk to one in the morning and he'd say you know I've got a bit more work to do and I, uh, I'm going home but he was always at the end of that phone and he'd always give me that time just to say keep going keep going keep going and and it, and it just kept carrying on and before you know it you were one two years down the line mm-hmm. and it was two years at the Savoy and then I jumped into a completely different area of kitchens which was then I went to to the Gavroche which was a three-star Michelin so from five-star hotel to three-star Michelin, through his advice, um, was quite an extraordinary environment. And that's where you know I bumped into lots of very interesting people. And that's where I met Gordon. Stay with me for that next part of my story, or rather Marcus's story. Here's Marcus Waring talking to me on Jazz Shapers. You're going to find out what happened when a man called Marcus met a man called Gordon. Uh, that's come up after this. It's uh, some words of advice for your business from our programme partners at Michigan Dorea. Hi, I'm Daniel Avener, CEO of MDR Brand Management, the fourth non-legal business entity that's been set up as part of the Mishkondorea Group. And we help companies build commercial value for their brands and intellectual property across the business world. Today, there have never been more complex challenges for companies in the global marketplace, especially when brand owners are looking to grow both in the UK and internationally. One area that should be considered when looking to expand your brand is brand licensing and franchise development. By harnessing the equity and the awareness of a brand, licensing and franchise development can often be an extremely cost-effective, low-risk strategy, one that can allow you to expand into new geographies and global markets, launch new product categories. It can be an effective marketing tool to create new connections and consumer messaging, bring a brand to life through branded consumer experiences and also protect a brand owner's trademark. MDR Brand Management can assist in all aspects of the licensing and franchise process to ensure that you generate significant and long-term revenue streams for many years ahead. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business. 
but it's personal. You can hear all our former Jazz Shapers and indeed this programme again by popping Jazz Shapers into iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. Or you can ask Alexa to play Jazz Shapers and there you'll find many of the recent brilliant people that I've been lucky enough to interview. But back to today's guest, it's Marcus Waring, celebrated chef and co-founder of Marcus Waring Restaurants. We're in London You've met this man called Gordon, Gordon Ramsay, um, and that really was the next however many, what, 15, yeah. 20 years plus yeah. of your life. Um, obviously, we're not going to cover every moment of that um, for, for many reasons. It's, yeah. it's a long time, and that's probably the most, that's the biggest one. If there were two or three things that you took from that relationship, the most important things, and in terms of what you learnt, and I don't mean directly, mm. but just being around that, um, and, you know, you have a reputation for being a stickler mm. and for wanting it right. And anyone listening can hear that you've got a work ethic, which goes back a long mm. way. He's not dissimilar. What are the what are those big defining things that for you you've taken on, regardless of where you two are now? It's an interesting question. There's one thing that I learned very, very early on from from working with him or knowing him and working for, with him was his level of generosity and was was quite extraordinary and that hit was that generosity of friendship generosity of sharing um it could have been his generosity putting food on the plate you know i'm a northerner from a very hard background and my father was a stickler for money as in the precision of it the understanding of it the the tempe he would make on a on a sack of potatoes you know and so it was small little numbers and he always was look after the small numbers and that reflected in me as a cook so gordon he could see a hardness about me, but also there was a meanness about it as well, a sort of a focus, central focus. And cookery is about generosity, and that has to come onto the plate. So for the two years I worked side by side at the aubergine with him, he really smashed that out of me and, and sort of got rid of that steely jacket that made me so harsh and so cold at times because I was so focused um, to, to learn to be generous. And that was, that's one of the biggest lessons I learned by being with him. You talk about the money then, um, in terms of your dad and the look after small coins, big ones look after mm. themselves and all that. And this goes to a point, I suppose, about business and about the art of creating a really successful business at the highest end, because that's the hardest thing. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're buying the most expensive ingredients and you want to put the most amount of time in. So immediately, with the best people, your mm. margins are going to be different. And I hear this all the time, sure. much easier to make money elsewhere. What, from a business point of view, because it sounds like generosity is one thing actually in terms of the delivery, where does the business acumen come from? Has that been on the job? I mean, it's not coincidence they ask you to run the fish mm. section. <clears throat> something There must be something naturally in you that's, about, that's good at leading, that's good at managing mm. people. I think it's the organisation. You know, when, when, when I, everything I can see so far in this conversation, I reflect back to my father's warehouse. Yeah. When my father bought things... We bought them by the tons, the pallets and oranges and lemons, you name it, the basics from Liverpool Market, from all over the farmers in the northwest. But when we were in that warehouse, the precision of how we stored them, we looked after them, we took care of them, we made boxes of cauliflowers look great, we sold them on. There was no waste. If there was waste, you know, you cut the waste off and you'd sell what was left and so on. There was this methodical work ethic. So when I went into kitchens, I'd had five, six years of this. Mm -hmm. So when I walked into that fish station at the Savoy, I knew how to store things, I knew how to stack things, I knew how to look after things. I'd had five years in front of even people who were a lot older than me in that kitchen. And that's what stood out, you know, in that particular process. So when it came down to business, I've got no business degree, I've got no accountancy degree. What I did when we joined Gordon and we, we sort of came together as business partners, his one restaurant and my one restaurant, which was L'Orangere and his was the Aubergine, grew into this this massive company that into many different hotels, we put restaurants and so on. Mm. And then this head office arrived 
this head office control things. And so to, to understand the business side, I used to go to the office and sit in every single department, the head of department, accounts, HR, sales and marketing and PR. I was just curious about all of these things in this building that control the restaurants. When I was in the restaurant cooking, I thought I controlled them, but actually they were controlling us. And that was where chefs find it very difficult to understand the importance of business, uh, understand the importance of what you need to do to be successful in today's world or in any world. It's not just about food on a plate. It has to turn into some form of business down mm. the line. I spent 20 plus years just cooking and adding a little bit of business knowledge into it. Now I've got to bring the whole thing together and, and have you know a percentage of everything to make the complete package so understand uh, the marketing the pr the, the business the money the salary you know the vat the taxation and the bank account the whole the whole thing now and i that that sort of excites me Cust- uh, uh, but custard tart or vat which one's more exciting please be honest marcus it's custard tart of there course <laughs> stay with stay with me for more from my business show for it's marcus wearing um time for some music right now it's dizzy gillespie with for the gypsies Dizzy Gillespie and for the Gypsies, Marcus, where is my business shape? We've been talking about all sorts of stuff around running a successful business. Your style of, of leadership before you left, um, before you, you know, while you were with Gordon, I imagine, was different to when you had to go and run your own thing. Mm. Just talk to me about that. When you actually are in the hot seat and it is you, mm. is there a psychological change? Do you, do you feel the responsibility in a very different way? Yes, yes, I did. I felt that I'd, I'd sort of got rid of the biggest support mechanism that I ever had in my business life and working life that we've been together for such a long period of time and then all of a sudden it's not there mm. that was 2008 December 2008 and I took over the Barclay Hotel um, on my own I had business partners lined up to come on board but that didn't work out and all of a sudden I turned around and I had no massive corporation around me no business partners and it was just me and my wife and it was 2008, and the, the scariest part about that was that was the beginning of this recession. Mm. That's when we saw Lehman Brothers all walking out with their boxes of, 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 of their, off their desk, and this was the beginning of the toughest 10 years of, of my business life. Did you um, think you'd made a mistake at any point in that, those early days? No, absolutely not. I was always, always going to do something, and I, I, I always thought we'd always carry on being together, but... I, deep down inside, I always wanted to have a go at running something, a company of my own. I just didn't really think it would be on my own. Um, so that's the 2008. I had the restaurant for for the, that November December, uh, and then we went into 2009, and it, that was the scary thing: is what's going to happen in 2009 if recession has just happened? That was the talking point of everything at that at that mm. point, and the world was an economy was just all going to collapse, and it sort of did. And that's when the business brain came into the equation, and that's where I had to really knuckle down. And I got a bit of a hard time in those days because. I spent the next five years just consolidating my cookery, my business, and managing how to, 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 to look to look after this business in a tough time. So I didn't go to many awards. I didn't really participate in many things. And I got sort of looked upon as being someone who was maybe rude or arrogant mm. or, or X, Y, or Z. But it wasn't Z. about that. Well, who was going to bail me out if it went wrong? Mm. It wouldn't be anyone that was criticising how I was doing things. So I closed the door. 
and I went back to my old self. I went back to that heads down, that selfishness, and I'm going to make this work whether it kills me or not. And that's what I did. And I had no choice because recession drove me to that. It drove a lot of people to that. You either crash against the wall or you go through it. And I decided to break through it. And you're in business with your wife, yep. Jane. And I think I read somewhere, I think it may have been your father saying, marry someone in the business so they understand. I think it was your father. It's the last thing he said to me on the train on when he left, <laughs> when, he, when he left me. Uh, one of the, in fact, the, the, when I went home for the first time and he came back and he, he took me to Lime Street, there's a last, one of the last things he said to me, he said, Marcus, do, if you ever get married, make sure you marry someone who understands your world because you're a chef through and through and never let anyone change you. Now, you say never let anyone change you. Um, you become a judge on MasterChef and there's this man, Marcus, who's kind of gone through the ringer a bit. Mm. He's consolidated, he's put his head down and now suddenly he's popping back up again. What's the impact on you then? Well, the MasterChef was something that when Michel lost his role on MasterChef Professionals, um, I remember reading a piece about it and I, I remember thinking, my goodness me, who's going to get that role? One of the best jobs on TV in food as far as I was concerned because it was all about new, new up-and-coming talent. It was MasterChef, so it was a huge juggernaut of a show. And uh, I remember look, reading the piece in, in, on, on, online and I just, you know, deleted it got rid of it and thought well that'll be the end of that I'll never no that's nothing to do with me it's just a piece of news and then sometime later I got a phone call um, to meet the producers then they came to see me and, and said you know we really would love you to, to replace Michelle Rue I have to say I, I, I couldn't quite believe what I was hearing because I just didn't see me as the character that could replace Michelle Michelle being a mentor of mine he's 10 years my senior I worked under Michelle at Gavroche so big shoes to fill um but in my head, if I looked in the mirror, I just saw a guy who was just working really hard, slightly aggressive towards the way he did things and didn't really see the smiley, chirpy person that Michelle was when he was judging MasterChef. So this came into me and I was asked to do it. And uh, uh, Karen Ross, who, who asked me to do it from Shine TV at that particular time, said, Marcus, there's only two things I need you to do more than what you're already doing. That is, do not swear. And everything you say, try to say it with a smile on your face. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I knew there was going to be a, you've got a smile, Marcus. And MasterChef, when I went on to it, was probably the first time I learned to speak about food mm. without aggression or without swearing or without volume. I've, I've only ever spoken to a kitchen. And that was always at speed and at pace and, and in the heat of service. So then, then going into this TV studio with no training, there's no training. You just, you just go in and you go with the flow. And you, you, you learn along the way. And it made me a better speaker, a better talker. And actually, I came back to my kitchen replicating and talking the way I was on MasterChef set. So I look at it and think, it's made me a better person. But it's also made me a better manager. I am what I am. But I love to go and be part of things and learn how to pick up skills and traits and working on books and working in TV and seeing radio, for instance... These are really interesting skills and a new world that you you know we we get the opportunity to look into and I, and I think there's always something to learn from other people's trades and MasterChef taught me a lot. Stay with me for my final chat with Marcus. Plus, we'll be playing a track from Freddie Hubbard. That's all coming up in just a moment. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. <laughs> Yeah. 
That was Freddie Hubbard with You're Gonna Lose Me. I'm with Marcus Waring just for a few more minutes. You've done a lot in your life, Marcus, mm. and you started working. You sort of said it. You had a five-year head start on most people that would have hit a kitchen at the age of 16, 17. When are you at your happiest? When is When are the eyes twinkling the most? Is it in the kitchen? Is it when you're judging? Is it when you sit at the end of a night and you've watched... 200 covers go in and out at what point do you go this is all right for about a split second i'm sure before you start worrying about what's wrong just think there's two answers to that i was at my happiest was at my happiest when i was behind the hot plate with no social media no iphones and no one distracting you apart from the waiter standing in front of you and the 15 chefs standing behind you pure focus and adrenaline to serve great food at high tempo in a kitchen full of energy and excitement so basically it was the living life on the edge of the difference between the madness of a chef and the perfectionist in in the food that you're striving for that's when you're happiest if i reflect on today uh, i have to say spending time with my kids at their schools and i think it's my children who have helped me or not helped me there's nothing wrong with me uh find New friendships, new, new new things, going to great schools, great sporting events and watching my children grow up for me was something that my dad never saw us do because we was always at work. Mm. So when my dad finally did finish his business or it came to an end, he, he, he retired at 55. He turned around and his four children had all grown up and gone. And so he never really saw us outside of the workplace his workplace and that was work he was in work mode he wasn't dad he was work mode we had one holiday a year and he, half the time he was asleep um you never really <laughs> got much to speak to him really he was unbelievable uh and so i vowed i would never do that uh and so that i would give where i can and find that time to manage my diary so that i can enjoy the times of, of going to see him you know i know tomorrow i've got a hockey game to go and watch with my, my middle son my other son's playing football and it will be on another pitch uh, at tombridge and then i'm going to go and head over and see my daughter play at the craziest game of lacrosse mm. i mean i thought football and rugby was rough you've got to see the girls play lacrosse wow what a cool sport so I'm really excited about tomorrow, you know, about going to see them and, and spending time with them because I think that's the bit that gets me away mm. from the, the, the central London life that I, that I live and that I work in. But that's quite a journey, isn't it? Because the obsessive in you is focused 100% from a precision point of view, mm. from an organisation point of view, from an I'm going to deliver the best meal you've ever had point yep. of view to this other world. But it, you're not faking it. I can see no. that this is real. But that must have taken... That takes some doing, Marcus, because you're you're in a highly yeah. pressurised environment, and you're a, you have public profile and so yeah. on. Well, I've I've been in kitchens as you know a long time, and so I've managed my life to enjoy the best bits I can. Thirty four years I've been a cook, and I've still got fifteen more years in front of me. You get less for murder. <laughs> so I know that these things were going to come in my life, and I wanted to make sure that I could organise it. I tell you one thing. If my kitchen wasn't functioning properly and I didn't have the right, the most amazing team around me, that hockey game, that rugby game and that, that, that lacrosse game would be put on hold mm. and I'd be in that kitchen. So it's a credit to the teams and the people that work for me, the fabulous people that enjoy this, this working life that I have. It's all down to them and I couldn't do it without them. Um, but if they weren't there doing it, I'd be doing it. But I've learned to enjoy management and to try and sieve my way through understanding what people want from their job and for working for me. You know, and I, and I, encourage, I also encourage people to, to move on from me and go and see other things and go, go and look at the broader picture. I love it when people come back and work for me. Um, but I, I also, one thing I do know about it, if you're going to work for me, you'll never forget it. 
It's going to be a little <laughs> bit different. It'll be a little bit different. Uh, and, and that's how I looked at jobs. I wanted something different from every experience I ever had. Uh, and, I, and that's what built my, my CV up. I just became a head chef a lot sooner than maybe most people do. I was 25. And that's quite unusual. And it doesn't work like that in today. You need to have a little bit longer. Uh, you need, people need to get a little bit more behind them under their belt before they can can become noticed. I got noticed at the age of 25 because there wasn't a massive amount of competition and there was no social media activity showing you the world around you. I didn't know what was going on in the kitchen next door to me, let alone what was going on on the other side of the world. So to stand out today is even harder. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, it, just before I ask you your song choice, the, the one or two things you would say to a 15-year-old you who or 13-year-old you who wants to be a chef, what have you got to do? Really study hard at school, study hard at college, get your A-levels, go to university, that's what you so wish to do, um, and work really hard. And B, make your choices, but make them with an open mind. But also, really, in my opinion, speak to your elders, listen to your parents, look around you, and don't choose a job just for the sake of having a job. Go and find the job you want and go and get it. And if you want it, you'll get it. If, you, if anything, I got my job at Gavroche because my dad told me to knock on the door, literally knock on the door, and that's exactly what I did. I was working in that restaurant one month later, and so from my point of view, you can have anything in life if you're prepared to really reach out and go and get that. And as hard as that may sound to a lot of people, it's just the way I used to think and it's the way I think today. Nothing's changed. It's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you. Um, Thank you. A proper masterclass uh, about someone who's really passionate about doing the thing they want to do and then going and doing it. Mm. Just before I let you go, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Uh, I've chosen uh, Cinema. Um, because for me, um, it was a song that I I used to hear actually when I was young. My my aunt used to when I used to pop around to her house. She was she was a lover of, of of music, and there was always music playing in the house. But when I remember my house, I never remember music on, and I never hardly ever used to hear the news or the TV was ever on at all. So music was quite a small thing in my life. Um, but then I, I this this song popped up in in the Thomas Crown Affair. You know, sitting along next and moving, it reminded me of that time when I used to go to my auntie's and we used to, she used to play it. And so it, it was, for me, it was an obvious choice because it's the one that stood out and it's such a long tune, quite deep, quite got a lot of depth to it. And it's a song that I listen to that has, you can go into your own world. You can put it on, on your headphones. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And I love it. That was the brilliant Cinnamon by Nina Simone, the song choice of my business shaper today, Marcus Waring. He talked about his work ethic and how it came from years of working closely with his dad. He talked about generosity and how he learnt that from Gordon Ramsay. He talked about the importance of organisation and precision. And really critically, if you're thinking about a career in anything that you want to do, he talked about having the courage to knock on the door. Brilliant stuff. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a great weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash jazz shapers. <laughs>